Friends, we have a problem. I'm sorry that I have to use the pulpit to bring this up, but it is the best way to reach the greatest number of people. We, as a church, have fundamentally broken one of God's laws, and we need to do something about it. We need to pray for forgiveness. We need to seek God's mercy, and we need to start moving on this right away in order to establish our faithfulness before the Lord. We need to stop using the church bathrooms. Now some of you are probably thinking, what in the world? Stop using the church bathrooms? We've heard this guy say some strange things from the pulpit, but this has got to be the strangest. But scripture is clear. We are supposed to have a designated area outside the church where we are to go when nature calls. We're supposed to keep a trowel with us at all times so that when we relieve ourselves outside, we can dig a hole and then cover up our excrement. We need to do this because the Lord is with us when we're in the church. Therefore, this church must be holy and we can't let the Lord see anything indecent among us. So it is after prayerful consideration that the trustees and I have gathered together and we have voted to permanently close all of the bathrooms here in the church building. And in the coming weeks, we're going to construct outhouses on the edge of the property for our excrement disposal. It's in the Bible. I believe the Bible. God said it. That settles it. I'm just kidding. Have you ever heard someone preach on Deuteronomy 23, verses 12 through 14? Did you even know that was in the Bible when Cindy read it five minutes ago? I've never heard someone preach on it. I've never even heard someone talk about it in a Bible study before. But in the 1880s, this was one of the most popular verses to be preached on from pulpits. Because in the 1880s, churches and bathrooms were quite the topic of conversation. It was the advent of indoor plumbing. Don't you remember? And the question about whether or not to have bathrooms in churches started to pop up for the first time. See, by the logic of the Old Testament, churches were seen just like the Israelite encampments. And because of this, the same rules about where people could relieve themselves were applied. Many preachers, and I mean many of them, used this argument from their pulpits more than a century ago to fight against the trend to build bathrooms in churches. Today, when people are designing a new church, one of the first questions isn't what the sanctuary should look like or what kind of design will make the altar beautiful or how many people can even fit in the sanctuary, but how many bathrooms should there be and where can we put them? How do we understand the word of God? Do we believe that all scriptures have been inspired by God and are useful for teaching? What does it even mean that God inspired the writing of scripture? What does that have to do with bathrooms? Years ago, I was invited to participate in a Bible study that met once a week. At the time, we were going through the Gospel of Matthew when one of the women in attendance interrupted with a dilemma for the whole group. Her son told her that he was thinking about getting a tattoo, and she knew that God forbids this behavior in the Old Testament. It was clear that she was looking for approval from the rest of the group, but I opened my big mouth, and I said something like, I don't think it's that big of a deal, to which she replied, if God says it in the Bible, then the issue has been settled. 
Now, friends, I have to confess, before I was a pastor, I wasn't a great person. I should have stopped right there, but I didn't. And I said, oh, so you don't eat pork or shrimp, and you're going to rally the community together to stone your son to death for rebelling against you? And Oh, and you didn't mean to wear earrings today because you know the Bible forbids them as well. She wasn't very pleased. This extreme biblical literalism is problematic, and it's basically impossible. If we try to live by the word with extreme rigidity, we would not be allowed to wear clothes made of two different blended fabrics. We would have to rethink our entire diets. Working on the Sabbath would get us killed, and men would never, ever be able to trim their beards. Ever. Jim Huggins, you were in big trouble. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. This is another one of those trite and cliche Christianisms that float around in conversation all the time. When Christians get into an argument about a particular biblical precept like prohibitions against slavery or even homosexuality, they will take a verse and they'll use it like a weapon against the person they disagree with. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. But whether we admit it or not, rarely do we read the Bible and think, okay, that settles it then. Because today, no one worries about whether to build a church with or without a bathroom in it. We don't hear preachers belabor biblical dietary restrictions. And we neglect a great number of scriptures while at the same time we use some to attack other people for who they are and what they do. There are all sorts of rules and regulations in Scripture that, if we're honest, we pick and choose whenever we want to emphasize. And as Cindy so faithfully read for us earlier, Paul, the apostle, is very clear in more than one letter that women should not speak in church. And yet, for the six years before I arrived here, you had a woman as your pastor. Our liturgist, Cindy Phillips, this morning read out loud from the Bible. She read that she's not allowed to do what she was doing. Heaven forbid, a woman speaking in church. Lord, forgive us. Of course, some churches still believe the words about the subordination of women are the gospel truth. In those churches, women are not allowed to serve in leadership positions. They're not allowed to teach Bible studies when men are present. They're not allowed to serve in any capacity that would require them to do exactly what Cindy did this morning. So permit me this aside for a moment. This church would not be here if women had kept their mouths shut. We are as faithful as we are because the women in this church have been brave enough to speak what the Lord has placed on their hearts because people like you and me have listened to them. So what are we supposed to do? We can't just throw out the Bible, but at the same time we know that we can't live by every single word inside of it. Like the apostles and the disciples before us, we read scripture and we hear God speaking through it. But then we also ask questions of it. We consider the context in which things were written. We wonder if God really intended for women to remain silent in church. 
We recognize that things like slavery are counter to God's will, even though there are more than 200 verses in the Bible that support it. We don't preach and teach about the problems of having bathrooms inside of churches. We follow the example of Jesus. Jesus, Son of Man, Son of God, did not adhere to strict biblical literalism. He had different interpretations about what you could do on the Sabbath. He actually had stronger opinions about divorce and adultery, and he regularly disobeyed the law by eating with people that everyone thought were unclean. Living as a Christian, reading the Bible, it's all about interpretation. And to be clear, interpretation does not mean that we change the text or we ignore it, but we proclaim it for this time and this place. How do we do that? Well, we don't do it in isolation. We don't read our Bibles in our living rooms never to speak of the words ever again. We don't listen to a sermon only to have that be the only time we ever encounter the words. We interpret God's word in community. We go to Bible studies. We send emails to our friends and to our pastor. We do what we need to do in order to comprehend that which is often incomprehensible. And then we let Jesus help us interpret. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As the definitive Word, Jesus helps us understand all the words of Scripture We read from the Old and the New Testaments alike through the lens of Jesus, and then we can begin to wrestle with how these words continue to live and breathe and speak to us today. But that requires a lot more work than just, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It compels us to actually read our Bibles, to take them up, and to talk about them with other people. It challenges us to ask really hard questions and produce new ideas. It requires us to believe that this book, this book in all of its different forms, is the living word of God. And that it can and always will speak truth in new and exciting and different ways. Perhaps in ways we cannot even yet imagine. This week has been filled with controversy in our country and in particular from the Oval Office. In the first week of a new administration, we've had a number of executive orders, including a call to begin construction on a wall on our southern border, a gag order for the EPA, and the halting of refugee migration from a number of countries. That one came on the same day we celebrate the liberation of concentration camps in Europe. On the same day we remembered the end of the Holocaust, we as a country said, we don't want them to people who are fleeing persecution and destruction. Now, no one has said that this has been done because it says we need to do it in the Bible or because of a particular verse in Scripture, but the Bible should have played a role in the decision if our politicians on both sides of the aisle are going to keep claiming that they're Christian. Because Moses was a refugee when he had to flee from Egypt. Ruth 
was a refugee after her husband died and she followed her mother-in-law to a strange new land. The entire Israelite people were refugees in Babylon and Jesus, the one we worship here in church every week, was a refugee. Like the people in the Middle East right now, he had to flee his home out of fear of violence and persecution and even death. And yet, somehow or another, we tout these certain stories from Scripture and we hold them over people's heads and we say, you are wrong because of who you are. And then we do something like prevent the oppressed from entering our country. And we forget all about the one who we worship on Sundays. People have used this book, the Bible, with understandings like God said it, I believe it, that settles it, to attack people, to belittle them. It has been used to justify the horrific practice of slavery. It has been used to subjugate women's rights. It has been used to rationalize physical violence and aggression toward people of different religions. It has been used to incite fear and terror in those who do not believe. It has been used as a weapon again and again and again. And so we, the faithful, join together and we say, no more. No more. No more to using the Bible like a weapon to oppress the weak and the marginalized. No more to complacent Christians that stand idly by as people are being attacked for whom they are. No more to the backwards ways of the past that lose sight of God's love and grace here and now. No more to God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No more. No more. No more. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Forgive us, O Lord, for our complacency in the ways in which we fail to be your obedient church. Forgive us, we pray, for the judgments we make against those who are different from us. Forgive us, we pray, O Lord, for refusing the outcast and the marginalized. Forgive us, O Lord, for forgetting the stories of your son. Forgive us, O Lord, for our sinfulness. Forgive us, O Lord. Amen.